This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hey, everybody, welcome, and thanks for joining us today in this conversation about Appalachia and the health of the nation. I'm Barbara Ellen Smith. Um, I've been working on issues of labor and social justice in Appalachia and the South for nearly 50 years now, um, and I'll be participating in this conversation along with Leslie Marie Dewar and Ashley Woodard Henderson. Uh, now it's my pleasure to bring in Leslie Marie Dewar and Ashley Woodard Henderson. Um, Leslie Marie is an activist and public health practitioner at Positively, Positively Living Choice Health Network in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, her work on substance use and harm reduction has appeared in a number of magazines and journals, and she's the author of a recent book that Haymarket published, uh, Rx Appalachia, Stories of Treatment and Survival in Rural Kentucky. Ashley Woodard Henderson is a 33-year-old Appalachian working-class woman born and raised in Southeast Tennessee. She is the co-executive director of the Highlander Research and Education Center in Newmarket, and she has been a longtime activist on issues of mountaintop removal mining, uh, environmental racism. She is on the leadership team of the Movement for Black Lives. And she has also, uh, she's on the Governance Council of the Southern Movement Assembly. So we thought we'd start out actually by giving a little bit fuller introduction um, of ourselves, each of us in terms of our own activism, and, uh, and then turn to some questions about how this moment of uprisings and protests relate to what is happening in Appalachia. Um, so Ashley, would you like to... Give a little further introduction to yourself. Sure. Thanks, Barbara. And so excited to be in this dialogue with people who I so greatly respect. So just thanks to Haymarket for making this conversation possible. Um, so my name is Ashley Woodard Henderson. My my friends and comrades call me Ash. Uh, I use she, her, her pronouns or anything said respectfully. Uh, but as Barbara mentioned, I'm the, the first Black woman executive director of the Highlander Center. Um yeah, and I'm a proud kid from like Chattanooga, Tennessee, um, that that grew up, you know, bouncing back and forth between the city of Chattanooga and a little unincorporated town in the country of Hamilton County called Summit, um, which is like to me an oasis. It was where I would go, where I didn't ever feel unsafe, where I could be outside, where my neighbors knew my name, uh, you know, where my grandparents made sure everybody had what they needed. I didn't know I was poor until rich white people told me I was, um, you know, as a place where people took care of each other, where I never felt unsafe because of law enforcement. To be honest, I don't ever remember growing up uh, in the in the county, like in rural East Tennessee and seeing law enforcement every day, um, where I saw the realities of over-policed communities and the tragic impacts of, of both class and health disparities uh, in regards to racial dynamics was 
uh, being in, in the inner city and, uh, and, and, and seeing what it was like for folks to have anxiety and panic attacks all the time because their communities were over police, um, where people were literally having to walk a mile and a half or roll in their wheelchairs a mile and a half to get to the closest, uh, you know, grocery store. When at my grandparents' house, I could just walk outside and pick something off a vine, right? Um, when I learned about those sort of disparities was growing up with a mother uh, who was a member of the Black Panther Party and joined in Appalachia, um, and a father who was a part of the Black Arts Movement and Black Communications Movement, um, who lost his job as they were finding out that they were pregnant with me in 1983, uh, after police officers and named Wadey Settles in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, and so, you know, this, I think that how I come to this work is honest <laughs> um, and humble. Um, and because it's, it's my, it's what, I, it's the way that I give back to the community that made me who I am. Uh, a community of working class, regular people uh, who were preachers and Baptists and AMEs and crackheads and junkies and drunks and uh, some of the best human beings that I've ever known. Um, and I'm excited to share how that influenced my understanding of what happens in Appalachia, what it means to be a relatively young person um, who has done deep work to reclaim what it means to be Black and Appalachian and Southern at the same time in one body. <laughs> Um, and, and, and to come into movement leadership in a place where multiple crises are intersecting and all of that is impacting folks' public health. Um, so yeah, that's, that's who I am. I'm excited to be on this call with y'all. Definitely. Marie? Yeah, I think, um, I am mostly Marie Viewer. Um, I also, I, I have a similar growing up, um, in terms of, I was close to Knoxville, but sort of in a town out, out in the county um, of Carnes, um, which today, because of all the development, uh, which has some major environmental issues, you wouldn't think it was so little, but uh, then, it, then it was. And so um, I've been in East, my family's been in East Tennessee a long time. And so for me, it was sort of uh, growing up, coming to terms with what it meant to be uh, white in Appalachian, which... Um, a lot of reckoning uh, uh, comes with that, and a lot of uh, soul searching of what that actually what that actually means, and how um, we can move forward as as um, going through that. And so, um, growing up here, we uh, we actually did get pretty hard hit by pills when I was in high school, and I saw that happening very quickly with my friends. And so um, that entered my friend group and uh, we've definitely lost people um, in different ways. Um, and then also with, you know, it, it hits every family here. And uh, I think that's sort of a cliche, but I think it can also be really true. And so that's what got, got me into thinking about issues of, of substance use. And so um, I was thankful that I went out to Denver, Colorado and got involved in some harm reduction work out there. I didn't know what harm reduction was um, when I was going to school in South Carolina and growing up in Tennessee, but learned about it there. And I really wanted to come home. And that meant coming actually to Eastern Kentucky to do um, work around. I really under wanted to understand how people were reacting to Oxycontin and other pills. And so I was interested in treatment programs and how those were, those were working. Um, and they weren't working at all, really, um, because of how they were being offered. And 
I kind of came back to my harm reduction roots. And so in Knoxville right now, um, I work for Choice Health Network Harm Reduction. We have um, the first and one of the um, only certain service programs uh, in East Tennessee. And so what that means is, you know, we really try to meet people where they're at for people who are using drugs and try to just help support them in the mutual aid that they've already been providing each other for a long time. And so that means getting people naloxone, which uh, reverses overdose, getting people syringes, getting people works so that they can use in ways um, that are, are safer. And we also try to think through how local policies, state and national policies place people who we work with at risk and how we can um, try to mitigate that or at least show how these policies are um, placing people um, who are already vulnerable in really risky situations. Um, and so with, with COVID, we have seen some changes. One, um, look, police violence is a constant thing for people who uh, use drugs, uh, especially if people are unsheltered. And it's every day. And that hasn't changed. Um, <clears throat> one thing that has really changed another force in people's lives is not just police, but also uh, we call it in Tennessee DCS. So department of child services um, and COVID has exacerbated all of that because parents are no longer able to see their kids, uh, which obviously is emotionally hard on parents and on kids, but it also, it puts kids in dangerous situations because oftentimes kids are taken from their parents for sometimes really minuscule things like a mom testing positive for cannabis once can get your kids removed or um, DCS being called on you because a neighbor was angry at you can get your kids removed. Um, and so a lot, oftentimes kids are taken out of such uh, out of their parents custody and placed in even more dangerous situations like foster care and even some family placements and parents use their visitation time to make sure their kids are okay. And when parents cannot regularly see their kids, their kids are not okay. And we've heard of uh, many instances, especially with COVID, of um, kids being seriously hurt in foster care and their parents not finding out for weeks, um, which usually before wouldn't have been the case. Um, so that's been a big issue uh, for us with COVID as well. We've seen a pretty dramatic increase in overdose deaths. Uh, for a variety of different reasons. Um, so we're just trying to meet those needs uh, right now in Knoxville and trying to think through ways of how can we change policies to prevent these problems from continuing. Thank you, Ashley and Leslie Marie. I'll go ahead and introduce myself um, briefly again, Barbara Ellen Smith. And um, I'm of an older generation, obviously. Um, my uh, Activism in Appalachia began in the early 70s when I came there to West Virginia, to Southern West Virginia, to work on the Black Lung Movement. Um, so that focus on labor activism has really stayed with me throughout um, my activism and my uh, academic writing. So I, um, my parents are, are from the mountains. My dad is from West Virginia. My mother from Virginia or East Virginia, as my father would say. <laughs> and uh, we used to come, you know, back every summer, I would come to the mountains in the back seat of the family car. But when I came to work for the Black Lung Movement, that was the first time I had really come on my own. And uh, 
claimed it for myself. I claimed it for myself. So um, I, uh, after working during the 70s in Black Lung, um, also worked with the Southeast Women's Employment Coalition, which is a multiracial effort to deal with issues of economic justice um, with working class women in the wider South, um, Appalachia and the Deep South. And then uh, also um, worked while at the University of Memphis, directing the Center for Research on Women, on various living wage campaigns, and on a multi-state effort around Latinx migration into the region. That was in collaboration with Highlander um, and the uh, Southern Regional Council, one of the oldest civil rights organizations in the South. And um, I was serving on the board of Highlander at that time and uh, chairing it for a while. And then went on to Virginia Tech, um, which I retired from recently. But I want to return to the issue of black lung because I um, decided recently to um, update and revise a book that I had written many years ago on the black lung movement. Uh, and it will be coming out with Haymarket in the fall. Um, I did so not only because, as people may know, there has been a wicked resurgence of the disease but also because the explanations that are on offer for why that is occurring seemed so inadequate. Um, you know, the technical explanation is that it's the changing content of dust with increased silica, and then the more, um, you could say, political or uh, liberal explanation is that it's a failure of government regulation. But, you know, excessive dust inhalation is not inevitable, right? And failed uh, government regulation has actually been true of uh, the dust program since its inception in 1970. So um, neither of those is adequate and neither addresses what I think is one of the fundamental issues, which is the um, protracted, violent, and ultimately successful effort to destroy the United Mine Workers in Appalachia. And so the book deals with um, the occupational health issues related to black lung, the production of disease in the workplace, but it also ties that to the relations of power um, that have altered so dramatically with um, the, this terrible weakening of the union. So, um, so anyway, that's a bit about where each of us is coming from as we approach this moment. Um, what we thought we'd do is to, um, I'm going to pose a few questions and we'll kind of do a round table, round robin, whatever, each of us answering them and building on one another. Um, and then as I mentioned before, you will have an opportunity to um, pose your own questions uh, to us. So be thinking of that as we, as we move through um, this conversation. Uh, so, first question, um, let's talk about the relationship that we see um, between police violence against black women and men, trans people, people of color more generally, and the health issues that we are facing here in Appalachia. Ashley, do you want to start us off? Sure. I mean, again, as a as a person who was born in Appalachia at a moment where people in my home community were taking it to the streets because police had murdered 
a vet a black veteran who's asleep in his car, right? Um, not too dissimilar to the story uh, that we're hearing out of Atlanta this week, right? Um, that, that got people even more engaged in, in protests and uprising. Um, that was in 1983, right? I was born in 1985 when folks were taken to the streets in response to the murder of Wadey Soto. So I think I think the 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 first thing that comes to mind when I hear your question, Barbara, is like this is not a new a new issue, right? Like this is an issue that has been true in our region within a region. Um, where the first abolitionist newspaper was written, right? Like it was in central Appalachia, in Jonesboro, Tennessee, where folks were like, nope, you know, we know that this enslavement of African descended people is not right and we need to stop it. And we need to create propaganda and have cultural interventions and actually like rise up to say that enough is enough. Um, fast forward to, you know, uh, you know, electoral justice movements of reconstruction where black people were getting elected all over um, our region. Um, and then, you know, here comes Jim Crow. Right. Um, and then we saw uh, the Freedom Rides, which also did come through Appalachia. Right. Um, uh, an underground railroad didn't just stop, you know, into the 50s and 60s. There were people that were literally using, uh, you know, a path to the south and a path to the north through Appalachia, through our sacred mountains uh, to fight for the liberation of black people in this country. Um, and so, you know, here comes little Ashley in the 80s. Um, and fast forward to 2012, you know, we saw incredible movement after Trayvon Martin was murdered in the deep black belt south um, and, and folks in Appalachia responding and saying, like, well, what about the ones here? Like, what about the ones here? How about those of us that have been impacted by police violence, which in no small way is a public health crisis? Right. If black if every 28 hours a black person in this country is being murdered by a law enforcement officer, whether appointed by the state or self-appointed. Right. To enforce laws, right? George Zimmerman said he was keeping his community lawfully safe, right? Um, then, then that is actually a crisis. That is a pandemic of sorts, right? Um, if people are not living long lives in their fullest humanity and dignity because their lives are being cut short by something that is not of their own control, right? So I think, I think that when I think about what's happening in Appalachia and the connections, it's well, one, police brutality happens here, right? It happens where we live. Um, there are certain communities where law enforcement, uh, people are engaging with law enforcement on the regular. And there are some communities because of the color of their skin and their class background that are not. That is not the kind of world that I want to raise my children in. Right. Um, so I think that where we're seeing uprisings is not just the big cities in New York and in L.A. and in Oakland. We're seeing that um, and not just in the big cities of the South, like Charlotte and Atlanta and Florida. We also have seen places like Charleston, West Virginia turn up. We've seen places like uh, Johnson City, Tennessee, turn up. You know, Knoxville has a Black Mama's Day bell out, right? Like we we are seeing our people uprise in Appalachia, and in no small part because it's a remembering of our radical legacies of resistance, right? Barbara spoke to a lot of organizations that taught us how to fight, right? Who've been down this road before, and I think a lot of the work of organizations like the Stay Together Appalachian Youth Project and the continued work of Highlander is to remember those radical legacies of tradition uh, and actually implement them in 21st century ways. Uh, to win social justice for us all. And then the last thing that I'll say is, and I spoke to it in my intro, is that I think what we're seeing is intersecting crises, right? So you heard like Leslie Marie talk about what it means to be an unsheltered person, a person uh, with addiction, um, you know, and, and, and then a COVID-19 happens, right? 
Um, so you were already facing the crisis of capitalism, right? What it means to, uh, to be exploited for your labor or not even offered an opportunity to earn resources because of who you are and what your living conditions are like, right? Um, and so we, we have one, one crisis of the economy, right? Then we have another crisis that impacts their, their physical health with COVID-19. That's not to mention that there are very minuscule resources going to mental health services or to treat addictions for folks that want to, right? Um, that, that we're not investing in those things. And then there's like the crisis of white supremacy and anti-blackness, xenophobia, transphobia, homophobia, all of these things that are intersecting crises in so many people's lives in Appalachia, right? But if you look at the, the municipal budgets of these cities, towns, these counties, right, these, 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 these local municipalities, I would bet that the vast majority of them are giving 50% or more of their budgets to policing, Right. They're giving more money to buying bullets and militarized equipment uh, for law enforcement than they're investing in, in like any sort of human services. Right. What would happen if we lived in an Appalachia where every single Appalachian governor had expanded Medicaid before COVID-19? And what would have happened even if they hadn't, if they were even taking like a tenth? <laughs> like, let's start with the easy a tenth of policing budgets and investing that into community health, into education, into supportive services for our people. Right. And I think, so I think that like, we cannot talk about the fact that we don't get invested in and not, and not talk about the issue and the crisis of overcompensating uh, police budgets in our, in our region. Um, I think we know that it's a crisis. And I think that we know that those law, those same law enforcement agencies have been used to stifle political uprisings that have made Appalachia the incredible place that it is today, right? You can't talk about Blair Mountain and not talk about law enforcement, right? You can't talk about, uh, you know, Highlander and not talk about how the state used law enforcement uh, to, to, to try to shut us down, right? Or even like, we don't even have to talk about what happened in the 60s and 70s. I can tell you what happened in March of 2019 when Nazis burned my office down and that I haven't heard from law enforcement since August, right? So I think there's there's so many ways in which the movements, the social movements that have been built by grassroots folks in Appalachia have not only been directly impacted because we're individually humans in community with each other and that have families that are impacted by all of these sort of intersecting crises that you've heard me and Barbara and Les Leslie Marie talk about already tonight, but also because they are contemporarily issues where these intersecting crises I mean, dollars and cents aren't going to very real needs that our communities have um, that we're not only directly impacted as individuals by, but also that our organizational efforts are being impacted by. So I think it's really, really critical to, to be paying attention to, to what these crises are, how they're intersecting and not fall short on false dichotomies about like, well, if we if we just end one of them, then we'll we'll deal with the other ones. Right. Like, I think. A significant problem in Appalachia has been like, if we just end mountaintop removal, then we'll deal with that racism stuff. Or if we just, if we can just deal with the opioid crisis, then we can talk about how the war on drugs impacted black people in Appalachia, right? Like if we just do these things, a piecemeal approach will not work. That's trying to put 2014 solutions on a 2020 problem. And right now what we need to do is make sure that we're working in our lanes if we need to at the intersection of these these crises, because I think all of our lives depend on it quite literally in this moment. Thank you. Dr. Marie, you want to take us? Yeah, and one thing that 
especially working in Eastern Kentucky, that um, especially local administrators kept telling us, oh, kept telling me over and over again, I think they were careful sometimes not to talk about police because they are all very red. Um, But I've heard so many times of people complaining that the jails are killing our community. The jails are killing us. The jails are killing us. And what they mean when they say that it is taking all resources away from everything. I mean, they're cutting all extracurricular activities. They're firing teachers at schools. They have to get rid of everything because the jails are eating up their entire budgets. And, uh, And as Ash said, you know, I mean, do we want to live in this kind of world where all of our taxpayers are going to cage other people? Uh, um, And I don't think anybody would say that they wanted to do that. Uh, And I think this this speaks to also um, certain bodies are seen to be able to be exploited and certain bodies are not. And so this plays into you you see the prison sort of industrial complex but also with the pharmaceutical companies um they are all exploiting similar bodies or coal companies it's what bodies can be exploited and what bodies cannot be exploited and i think um that that really ties together a, a lot of the different issues happening it's and it's because who is expendable and who is not um and we know for purdue pharma Appalachia was seen as expendable, um, as was um, Native American reservations and parts of Maine as well. Uh, And I I think also as we're seeing these grassroots movements moving up against different things, it's also because the police state has expanded through not just the police, right? All social services are now so extremely punitive. Um, Substance abuse treatment programs, many of them are so punitive. So the sort of the punitive power of the police has expanded into all these other aspects that are not necessarily the police, but are still um, dramatically affecting people's health. Um, because people cannot get health services without feeling like they are being treated horribly. And they are being treated horribly because they are being punished um, through these different health services. So um, I guess that's my two cents on that. Great. Thank you. Um, Well, I'll just add a a few things. I have been thinking a lot about um, violence in the wake of George Floyd murder and the relationship between that kind of immediate sadistic brutality and what I think of as a kind of long, slow violence that both Ashley and Liz and Louis have spoken of in terms of budget priorities, state funding, um, the, you know, the violence of malnutrition, the, the violence of um, slow suffocation from, you know, coal dust inhalation. Uh, so, um, and I've also been thinking about kind of building on uh, what Les Marie was saying about some bodies being expendable, um, about the fact that, and exploitable, um, that some bodies are also considered really disposable. Michelle Alexander and many other people talk about this in terms of the um, disposability of, of black bodies in this present era when you know, the old labor regimes that used to discipline black workers are no longer necessary because black workers are no longer totally necessary. And in many ways, um, there are similar dynamics going on in places like southern West Virginia where the coal industry is just in total freefall. And so you have white workers, even white working class men who are becoming 
um, essentially disposable. And I don't mean to level the distinctions here because I think, you know, white working class men in places like Central Appalachia are increasingly disposable um, because they're replaceable, <laughs> right? But black people's bodies are disposable, period. I mean, there are distinctions there. I'm not trying to suggest that class is the only thing that's going on. Um, but I do think that uh, that there is this kind of um, this relationship between multiple forms of violence and also this notion of um, disposability that is, uh, or spendability and exploitation um, that are really important to, to point to in a context where ultimately we're talking about the just the ravages of a completely unrestrained capitalism um, and white supremacy. So, um, and I've um, as we talk about the, um, the uprisings that are occurring in Appalachia, in the United States and around the world, um, I am also struck by how many times the state has actually pointed out um, in recent years has been mobilized to defeat our opposition. But, and even as that is occurring now, we are seeing cracks. Um, and I think new possibilities. And that raises um, another question, which we've already spoken to some, but um, but have, let's go a little bit further into this question of sort of, of what possibilities might be opening up in Appalachia in this, in this context of um, uprisings around the world. Um, Leslie Marie, do you want to start us off on this? And I think Ash can probably speak better to, to some of this, but I think um, one thing is, you know, mutual aid has been happening for a long time, um, both in our location and um, among marginalized communities here. Um, so you look at uh, people who use drugs have really been saving each other for a long time because it's not safe to call first responders, um, especially in Tennessee. Um, the laws are not protective of people um, how they should be. And so it's really not safe to, to call first responders. And so mutual aid has been happening for a long time. But I think in this current moment, there's a lot of press around it. And I think there's an ability to build on that and to show um, how important mutual aid is, how long it's been working so well. And so how are ways that we can defund the police in order to support um, mutual aid that is happening. Um, and so I think this can be a useful moment to work around both of those things. How do you defund one in order to support the other that has been doing a much better job for a lot longer? Amen to that. I don't know if I could have said that better because I think that's exactly it. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I feel as much as I feel rage, like enraged, like viscerally, perpetually pissed off, um, and infinite amounts of grief that the the true cost of what it took to get to this moment of such possibility required so much black death, like like an infinite amount, like generations of black bodies uh, to get to the point where we can get like a handful more white people to say black lives matter and believe it. Right. Or get to this place of being able to talk about what defunding the police might look like. The cost was too damn high, but 
the other half of my Gemini feels so infinitely hopeful um, because of the, the familiarity of these muscles, right? It's like, I think many of us that have been in social movements, particularly after Trayvon was murdered, after Mike Brown was murdered in 2014, um, have learned a lot of lessons um, in, in the time periods that we've been building social movements. Um, and I think we're seeing the benefit of that, those lessons in this moment. Um, and let me speak a little bit to that. One is I would amen and check plus and echo what Leslie Marie just said about mutual aid. It is like mutual aid as a practice is as old as Appalachia, right? Like we've been doing, our people been doing that work for forever. You know, if, if we had extra tomatoes and you had an extra hog, then we just switched that shit out and we all got food to eat, right? If, um, you know, my kid needed a ride um, and I had to work. My neighbor made it happen. Like all of that is just is literally when we say mutual aid, we're we're not just talking about like uh, charity. Right. We're talking about the ways that communities show up and show out for each other because we know each other and we've discussed what our needs are. Um, and so, I, you know, it's been interesting, especially since the rise of COVID-19, how many people have like opportunistically co-opted uh, the the terminology of mutual aid, but not the history the radical legacy of resistance, but as like as mutual aid is actually a form of direct action, right? Um, and 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 the the real political principles that, that undergird it, and and I've seen people, particularly in Knoxville, but across the region, really really leaning into being like, nope, like we're gonna start from a place of talking about the history and principles. We're gonna talk about how to do it. We're gonna do it for a few weeks. We're gonna sum up what we're learning. We're gonna flex it. Uh, to make it even more useful for people on the ground. And to be honest, especially in relationship to the last question, it's been fascinating to see the police response to people who are doing mutual aid with the people who most desperately need it. Like my my colleagues and comrades have been followed by police, have been arrested for giving homeless people peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Like it is literally that kind of police response when that's supposed to be the the that's supposed to be, and I'm using that really lightly, the folks that are offering public safety, right? So why does that matter to a question about possibilities? Well, to me, there is a possibility of reimagining what public safety looks like then in this moment. Right. Like, what would it look like if I have a, a neighbor that's sleeping on a park bench or, uh, you know, that's asking for money on the corner? What would happen if there was a number that I could call that could get them social services to see if they've got what they need to keep them off the streets? Right. What if in a situation of domestic violence, which we also know is rampant in our region, there was a number that I could call? if I needed to get out that could give me the resources to be able to do so and to keep me and my family safe, right? What would happen if there was some other sort of violent intervention that we could actually preempt before calling cops with guns to lock up people in cages for the rest of their lives, knowing that that does not rehabilitate anyone, right? So I think there's a possibility of actually coming together and being like, what are the harms that are happening in our community to our people? And, and how do we define like other ways beyond policing to keep people safe? Because I'd imagine that if I asked you to close your eyes for just a second and, and to think really quickly about a time in your life where you, fe where you felt safe, I would bet that one of two things would happen. Maybe you'd be like, I don't know. I've never really felt safe, right? Because you're black or you're working class or you're queer, or you're trans or gender not conforming. Um, or you you grew up cash poor and you were always trying to figure out how to make a, a dollar out of 15 cents, right? That might be real. But I bet if I pushed you 
at least you might be able to get to the second thing where you envision yourself with your friends or your family or your faith community, or maybe you saw yourself out in nature or, or any number of things. But if I asked you if you saw police in jails and prisons and detention centers, I bet you didn't, right? So I bet that if I actually took the time to learn with you and to learn from you about what makes you feel safe, I bet we could get to, to really doable solutions that are not just utopian and idealistic that could actually get us beyond policing. So I feel certain that our communities could defund the police in my lifetime. I feel, I feel there's a huge possibility around that. I also think that there's a possibility of actually meaning what we say when we say that there's a role for everybody, right? Especially in a moment like this moment that we're finding ourselves in with COVID-19, where it's not literally physically safe for people to just go out and be in all the marches and be at all the protests, right? But that there are really concrete multi-tactical interventions that could be made where folks could be calling legislators and saying, defund the police, where they could be signing petitions. And that actually means something in this moment where they could be doing other virtual things from the or having the uncomfortable conversations with their family members about race. Right. Like all of these things could be happening right now and actually making the impossible possible. And I feel excited about that. And the last thing that I would say is I, I feel like this is a moment. I feel like my, my assessment is that all too often the left and, and progressive forces concede territory. Right. They concede territory because they don't understand the geographic realities of Appalachia or the South. They get, they, they concede territory because they don't think it's worth the investment, that there are easier places to win or more important places to win. Right. You know, if we're talking about electoral work, they're like, well, yeah, like we definitely should organize everywhere. But like, if we get the flyer, if we get these States, we'll, we'll get the majority and we'll be able to win a presidency or a, a, a state house or, or the Senate or whatever. Right. Faith communities get conceded, right? Like all of these things. And what, and I want to raise it because when we concede territory, what inevitably happens is there's a vacuum. And if we believe that in moments like these, that that vacuum will remain unfilled, we are grossly mistaken. We are grossly mistaken. What we've seen is like, if, if we do not, as a, as a progressive community that supposedly believes that as goes the South, so goes the nation, <laughs> If we concede that territory, nothing would happen. I would remind us of, of 2016. I would remind us that when people are talking about liberals in the South, they're talking about Joe Manchin, right? It's like there, there, there is a necessary need for us to fill the vacuum and to do the work that Toni Morrison and others talk about remembering, right? Like what, what these systems of oppression have done in our communities is dismember us from each other and our old ways, right? And the, the innovation to be able to create new ways, right, with each other. And so our role, I think, as griots, as storytellers, as activists, as organizers, as mamas and daddies and caregivers, as memas and papas, right? Like our work right now is to actually remember community and how to practice that, how to practice liberation, how to practice equity, how to practice justice, how to practice power building with each other in a way that doesn't take anything else away from anybody else, right? There's plenty in our region to go around. And so I feel excited about the possibility that our social movements actually get it right this time around not conceding territory and not falling victim to false dichotomies about us and them or insider and outsider or, 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 or you know, this movement first and then that movement, that we actually have enough to go around to be able to make it all possible. And in fact, 
defunding the police is actually an easy way for us to get the resources to be able to do a whole lot more envisioning of what Appalachia should be in a 21st century context. Great. Thank you, Ashley and Lester Marie. I'll just um, add a few things. And one of them is just to acknowledge how incredibly exciting it is that there's so much young, so many young people, <laughs> um, younger people, at least, who are um, stepping up and the leadership and vitality is just enthusiasm is um, uh, it's really, really heartening. And um, as you all were saying, too, I think we really, in, in, in this moment of uprising, which can appear so spontaneous, um, it's so important to remember that this stuff didn't come out of nowhere. I mean, all the organizing that went into making um, this possible is really, I think, a, you know, a testament, testament to like Black Lives Matter, um, the abolition, prison abolition movement, and many, many other efforts. So, um, I uh, I also think that this demand to defund the police, even though I realize for folks who are really into prison abolition, it doesn't go far enough. It doesn't, you know, demand the whole cake. Um, I think it's incredibly important because it's so far beyond the kind of piecemeal, you know, band chokeholds or you know, discrete individual um, targeted policy changes. I mean, the and it. And it kind of expresses this profound skepticism about not only law enforcement, but our budget priorities all overall. And um, I think that opens up incredible possibilities to, you know, as Ash was saying, demand, call your legislature, your city council, whatever, you know, sell them deep on the police. We need much more in the way of mutual aid or in the way of, you know, harm reduction programs and so on um, that are based on those kinds of models. So, um, and, and I, so I think that's hugely relevant all over the U.S., but it's, again, I keep coming back to the coal fields because that's um, what I'm most familiar with in terms of Appalachia. And there, I think it is hugely relevant because the economy is collapsing. And the idea that we need a just transition Yet, of course, to be defined is is absolutely on the table, and it's clear that that's going to involve um, not only mutual aid and so forth, but also some fundamental structural changes around land ownership, taxation, who's paying how much for what, um, budget priorities just across the board, and um, so that uh, I think it's it's really exciting um and uh and just one other thing i would say that that um these uprisings are coming at a time where in west virginia for example progressive voices are getting louder and louder and are being heard i mean you, you have not only the recent teacher strike but also the west virginia can't wait movement which um enlisted a whole bunch of folks to run for office, um, refusing to take corporate money, and built a progressive, very progressive platform from the bottom up through meetings throughout the state. So um, I think there's a lot of possibility um, at this moment, and uh, we got to see this. Um, so another question, and this is back to um, this COVID situation um, and just interested in having us all reflect on 
what we see as um, the relationship between the fact that we're in the middle of this global pandemic um, and also in the middle of these uprisings. But is there any relationship here? Um, do you want to start us off, Ashley, and then I'll talk and then Sure. I mean, oh my gosh, I feel like there's so much (laughs) that we're learning um, in this, in this moment, like why the uprisings now is a question that I think a lot of people are considering. I think even just understanding the impact of COVID in Appalachia, Central Appalachia in particular, but Appalachia in the South in general, I think is something that we're going to be in summation around for a very long time, to be honest. Um, And I think that for a lot of reasons, one is because our public health infrastructure was being demolished and dismantled with everything the right could give it, you know, for like a very long time. So by the time COVID hit, we were already in trouble. Right. Um, And and if I say the broad we, you, you can imagine that I mean that in much more disproportionate impact when I'm talking about black rural central Appalachians or, you know, or Southerners in general. Right. Um, so I'll be universal, but I'm going to I'm going to always zoom into to what I know. And that's what it is to be black, rural and Southern. Um, but so why why do I think what am I learning about COVID and how do I think these uprisings are, are impactful in this moment? One is that like people were home. Right. Unemployment. Unemployment was already bananas where we live. But it is like unemployment on steroids with COVID-19. And the person like, you know, it's always interesting to me. It's a it's a it's a sharp line to, to, to walk around knowing that there were people in communities that I love that voted for this president. Um, but also recognizing that like Trump didn't win the South because everybody came out and voted for him. Trump won because people didn't go vote and because people that tried to couldn't because of voter suppression. But if I was being petty, I would also remind people, like I would just ask like Barbara and, and Les Marie, like, where is Trump from? He's from Queens. Like we didn't do that. Um, but he did promise our people a whole lot of things that were never, ever, ever going to happen. He promised that he was going to bring the coal industry back and that the economy in Appalachia would boom. And he lied. He lied to our people. Right. And he continues to lie to our people, even specifically about COVID. Right. He says in one sentence that the, the economy is booming and that jobs are going great and that everybody's happy. But what we see is working class white people, to Barbara's point, who are like literally trying to figure out how to hustle a nine to five, be able to feed their families and being put in a position where they have to choose between having to go and put themselves and their families at risk of of exposure to COVID-19 versus like being able to stay at home and take care of business. Right. So I think what we're seeing is like there there were a lot of people who were who were at home, like so very literally their availability to to turn up was possible. But I think even more importantly than that, which feels like a really lazy assessment, is that people were already mad. I think more white, poor working class white people, particularly rural white people, uh, were like, oh, wait, this white supremacy card doesn't get me out if there's a global pandemic. (laughs) And all the promises that that man in that White House told me ain't come to fruition. Right. So I think there were more, I think white working class people, I think if I was, if I was asked, no, I'm not asking. If I was telling white people a thing that they could do right now is to make clear the connections about how white supremacy doesn't really work for white people, (laughs) especially white working class people, because you might not be disposable yet, 
But I promise you, Donald Trump is not looking out for you in the morning. Right. Your right wing supermajority legislature is does not care about your well-being. Right. They don't. And you have more evidence now post COVID-19 than you did in January. Right. So I think that's one thing. I think the 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 other thing that I would say is that, like, what what we're seeing in, with COVID is let's talk about the timeline. Right. So people started paying attention, but even though we've been talking about COVID-19 since like December. Right. People started paying attention to COVID-19 right after the South Carolina, like after Super Tuesday, right? After South Carolinians voted. Well, why does that matter, Ashley? Well, people pay attention to the South Carolina vote because the press makes it like this dog whistle that, that who, however South Carolina goes is who all Black people in the country are going to vote for, which doesn't have to be true, right? Um, so what we saw was like for like just a few weeks before the shelter-in-place order started to drop in Central Appalachia, we saw... For like the first time in, in in recent memory, everybody talking about what black people wanted, right? Like what does what does the black southerner want, right? Everybody was talking about it. And then just a few weeks later, it was radio silence about the impact of what was happening in regards to a global pandemic on black southern rural people. It dissipated. Then the center of it, and I, and I don't think it has to be an oppression Olympics, but I do think that it's important to remember that we went from talking about what the issues were that were important to Black Southerners, and at the top of those lists were racism and policing, was healthcare, right? Was uh, you, like making sure that folks had living wages, right? We went from that to being the focus of that national conversation and shifting what was possible in regards to the who was going to be the next president of the United States to being totally abandoned and in most cases mocked to the issues that impact us front and center in the national debate. So I raise it because what we know is now that we didn't necessarily know uh, statistically speaking, like quantitatively speaking, is that black folks, particular, the majority of black people live in the South, y'all. So like Appalachia is not synonymous with whiteness. <laughs> we, we out here, hi. And we know that the impact on our families and communities has been disproportionate to white people. We know that Women in particular, have, the impact has been disproportionate than others, not only in regards to getting the illness or surviving the illness, but also in terms of what it meant, means to be caregivers um, in this moment, right? What we've seen is that at least one, probably two of the biggest outbreaks in the carceral system have been in Appalachia and definitely have been in the South, right? In Tennessee in particular. So I think what we're learning, what we know to be true is that we had elected officials who made intentional decisions to not expand Medicaid for all of us, right? And, and they did that knowing that many people had been saying that because of climate change, pandemics were going to be a new reality, right? And so we're seeing the impact of the disinvestment in our communities. And I know it's like being a dead horse, but I'm just going to keep saying it. Like if budgets are moral documents, you get what you pay for. And what we didn't pay for was making sure our people could be taken care of in a moment like this. So why uprisings? Because people are, have said enough. They've said enough. If 100,000 people in the United States are dead, more than that now, are dead because of COVID-19, you can imagine that there's a significant number of them in our communities. There are family members. And I think people were upset about that. I also think that another reason, the last reason that I'll say, and, and I think that that some of it is messed up, right, is that like you you we're home to watch the video of four men murder a black man on camera and nothing happened. 
like there was no argument that this country has made a decision that some people are above the law and some people aren't, right? I want to I want to put a pin there though because I think what really matters is that while folks in Appalachia are talking about George Floyd, which we absolutely should, that black man should not be dead over a twenty dollar check, right? What people aren't talking about is that Breonna Taylor is also dead, and the people that were involved, like her family, doesn't even know what happened, right? No one, like no one is, ta- and I think like patriarchy has to be named, right? I think even even on top of that, we have to talk about Tony McCabe being murdered in Tallahassee, a black trans man, right? Even more than that, we have to talk about the the what four to five black trans women that we probably couldn't even name on this call who have been murdered because of toxic masculinity and patriarchy, right? So I think there's like this ongoing conversation that needs to be had about again about the intersections of these violent forms of oppression that are impacting people disproportionately in this country. And I think that, that George Floyd's murder and seeing people in the streets, <laughs> I think, I think the, the, the thing that I feel like was a wake up call for so many people was seeing folks in the streets with their hands up, asking for justice, being responded to with a military force with incredible might. And that the state would rather spend billions of dollars in overtime and tear gas and rubber bullets than to hold four officers accountable for having killed somebody. That the response in, in, in little country Appalachian towns would be the National Guard versus just saying, can we just make sure that these four cops who killed somebody are held accountable? I think pissed people off, and I think rightfully so. Um, and, and I think that when added on top of the fact that folks can't get access to health care, can't get access to living wages, are having a hard time being able to be able to organize in the workplace, or you know, on and on and on. It's just, I think capitalism is in crisis as it tends to be. And this is our generational moment to be able to do something about it. Great, thank you. Elsie Marie, you want to go next? <laughs> you want me to? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can go. Um, and I think one thing too is, I mean, with, with COVID, we have seen a failure of the state. And if a virus can make uh, aspects of the state completely fail, then why can't we? Um, and, you know, take down aspects of the state that are, are not working, have never worked, and have only been there to repress. And so, and when Ash was also talking about conceding um, sort of territory in a geographic way, I think it's also a, a policy way as, as well. And when you're thinking about all these issues together, um, and I mean, what Joe Biden is pushing right now is reform, 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 and also throwing more money at police departments, which is absolutely outrageous. And so... Um, and I think sometimes when people think about Appalachia, they don't understand that all of these reforms have happened here, too. It's not just in northern urban places where these they've happened here, too, and they don't work at all. Um, and I, I know one thing that's being pushed around. So what happens if we abolish police is this idea of restorative justice. And I want to make sure that we don't start pushing things like restorative justice as an aspect of reform because it can't be because it's already happening. Restorative justice has already been put into our drug court system and our recovery court system is what's called in Tennessee. And it absolutely does not work. It becomes a way to further blame 
especially people who use drugs, and to levy more and more court fees on people who cannot pay those fees, which actually just turns our prison system into a poorhouse where people are being picked up constantly because they can't pay court fees, not because of anything else. And so the, the reforms that we're talking about, whether it's mutual aid or restorative justice, I think by definition cannot work unless the police are defunded and abolished and unless our legal system overall is completely shifted. Because if you take these things that we're talking about, like uh, restorative justice and mutual aid, and try to cram them into this black hole of our of our current legal system, they lose all of their light, they lose all of their possibility, and they turn into just another way to surveil uh, people on the margins and to, and to try to eke more and more cash out of them or, or labor. So um, I think that that's just sort of, as we talk about conceding ground, it's about not conceding territory and not conceding policy because it, it just doesn't work. And we've been doing it for a long time, even in places like rural Appalachia, and it still doesn't work. Thank you. Yeah. So um, it really, I've been thinking a lot about um, the fact that so many white folks have been showing up in these demonstrations and protests um, and why that is. And I guess a number of things come to mind. And one of them is, is the way that the Sanders campaign and the Warren campaign, I mean, sort of the, the most progressive, the radical um, national efforts just, you know, got cut off at the knees. Um, and uh, there's a lot of frustration out there, um, I think, over those developments. But I also think it, I think it also has to do with what Ashley was pointing to in terms of we're just not, we're outside of ordinary time now. I mean, this COVID thing has just, you know, it's the widespread unemployment, it's the being at home, it's having to kind of make up every day what the heck am I going to do and how am I going to survive? Um, and uh, it's just, it's we're not in business as usual, you know? And then on top of that, we're in this moment of vulnerability where people are really thinking about, you know, their own mortality, I think, in ways that we don't usually do when we're just living our lives every day. Um, and then third, as both of y'all were talking about, this the complete failure of state institutions to protect people. Um, has, um, I mean, you know, for the richest country in the world to be so unable uh, to deal with this pandemic, it, you know, it would be laughable if it weren't so lethal and horrible. Um, so I think, you know, all of that's going on and then George Floyd gets murdered so brutally, publicly, visibly, um, and gets circulated all over the place. And people who are already, like, feeling their own vulnerability and fear that they can't breathe, you know, see this like enacted by agents of the state. I mean, it's like this crystallization of the worst outcomes of our complete failures to protect people's occupational health, environmental health, um, as consumers, as workers, you know, and it's not just that the state is is failing in those ways, but it's actively killing people. It's like a death-dealing machine. <laughs> so it's like, uh-uh, no, <laughs> no. 
this is enough. This is way beyond enough. Um, so I think it's, yeah, I do think, I think there are lots of you know, relationships there um, between the uprisings and this pandemic that we're in. So um, we do have a question or two from the audience, but I want to invite you, um, Ray and Ashley, do you have questions you wanted to talk about? in addition to what we've already covered? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think Leslie Marie's point about, I think, I think there's two things that I'm gleaning from, uh, I'm gleaning a million things from what you all have said, but I think there's two things that really resonated with me. One is like, uh, Barbara, when you were saying like, just transition yet to be defined. And then like Leslie Marie, when you were talking about how uh, the state um, and the, the carceral injustice system has co-opted the language of restorative justice, totally take it again, like they did with mutual aid, taking it out of context, away from its history, away from its principles, um, and made it punitive, which is literally the antithesis of restorative justice. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's, there's some, there's some like, un, uh, some digging that out that I'd love to do with y'all. I mean, I think, you know, again, especially as we're thinking, like when I'm talking about defunding the police. I am talking about just, like that's the only just transition, right? Uh, when I'm talking about what it means that, you know, mining in our communities has not been good for the people or the planet. And and I'm saying that like, if, if it is true, if our assessment is correct, that we should live in a central Appalachia where people are not expendable and they're not exploitable and they're not disposable, then like capitalism can't exist, right? That actually won't work because it literally does all three of those things for the sake of production, right? So if that is the case, then I think that that like how we as 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 thought leaders, as regular people, as organizers, as activists, as academics, etc., faith leaders, whatever, are thinking about what does it look, what does what is our utopian vision for beloved community, right? where everybody like everybody has what they need so there is no harm so there's no need for law enforcement in the first place right like what is what does it look like like what are the things that if people had they wouldn't do bad things right and i think that we have the answers to those questions and the implement where we have a problem is the implementation side right and i think part of the issue around getting to just transition or getting to a world where restorative justice and mutual aid are the name of the game the status quo not the exception is it that difficult if we just do it, right? I think what makes it difficult is that we silo into particular tactical interventions, right? So let me break that down. I think that, that and I wanna hear your assessment and your feedback to it. I think that like my assessment is that what we do is we say the way to get to just transition, the way to get to restorative justice is policy. And then all the people that do direct action are like, that's whack. All the organizers are like, nope. All the academics are like, well, what's your theory, right? And then if the only way forward is organizing and base building and political education, then the policy people are like, well, about what? And the academics are like, again, what's your theory? And the direct action people are like, but there's a, there's a world that exists right now that we need to be resisting, right? And so I feel like for us to get to a place where we're actually practicing restorative justice, where we're actually like practicing just transition, that's not just the greening of things that were bad to begin with, right? Like, I don't care if it's a eco-efficient jail. I don't care. <laughs> that's not that's not just transition to me, right? I don't care if it's building a Walmart and you're saying that 
people will have jobs at a Walmart on a former mountaintop removal site. That's not just transition. It's not just, right? Like the word just means something. And I think that if we could get to the place of saying like, what does that just, what does that just world look like? And I know that many, 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 many organizations and communities in the central Appalachian area have been doing this work. Um, then I think that we could follow the steps back to be like, actually, it's going to take all of these tactics. We're going to need all of them, right? When my elders and ancestors say by any means necessary, they mean by all the means, right? And and I feel like if we actually were having those conversations um, instead of like pigeonholing each other around like whose role is more important, I feel like we would get there. We have to be resisting and building, right? We have to be uprooting and dismantling and creating the alternatives. And, and that's what makes me so excited about the folks that are doing mutual aid right now is that they're seeing both. They're helping people envision both. They're bringing people together uh, based on their their gifts, their skills, their their areas of expertise uh, to make the impossible possible by dismantling what we've always been told is the is the thing that we should be striving for, which has never been. I think, as, as Leslie Marie was saying earlier, it doesn't work because it was designed not to work for us, right? It was designed to work for a very small minority of of property owning white men. Um, and then what it looks like to build the thing that we actually do deserve, right? And not, I think the, the the fear that I have in this moment isn't that we won't win. I feel certain it's right there. Like, I feel like I can taste it. I can touch it, uh, that people get it. They understand it and they're ready to have it. That's not the thing that concerns me. The thing that concerns me is that for those of us that are scared that this is too quick, it's too radical, it's too much, it's impossible. Y'all are trying to do the impossible. That they that they freeze up and they get so scared that they concede to what they what they'll accept in this moment to to appease them to get back to an old normal that was never good instead of fighting to win what they deserve right now um, and I think that goes back to the point that you the points that both of you were making earlier around like piecemeal legislation um, and you know these 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 little concessions that the state will make for the sake of just not rocking the boat too much that actually aren't in regards to our demands. I think that's how we got to these drug court interventions. That's how we got to these places of people literally talking about just transition um, in ways that, that, that are not just or a transition from the fossil fuel industry to anything that should be better for our people. So, you know, I, I feel curious about your thoughts about how we got to this level of co-optation and what you think, what you're seeing and, and what you feel hopeful about in terms of people reclaiming what was always supposed to be something that was a radical idea. I'll let you uh, speak okay. to this. Um, well, I totally agree, Ash, in terms of the, um, the kind of squabbles and silos and so on that we get into, um, depending on our own comfort levels, knowledge, you know, sometimes political outlook, whatever. Um, and that that's hugely destructive and it's definitely part of the problem with the, the um, effort to create a transition. Um, I also think, though, that there still is a need to do that visioning, to really to really flesh out what is, what does that beloved community look like? Because I think I mean, that's in some ways why defund the police, even though it's not even really in some ways a vision, but it's so like, oh, I mean, it's so provocative for people who, you know, have just never considered that that's even a possibility. So um, I think part of our job in terms of opening up possibility is to really open up vision. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, um, it's, 
our own fear and, you know, the vision and incapacity to um, pursue what we know together um, that is, in the first instance, maybe not in the last, but in the first instance, what's holding it back. Um, so we also have a question from the audience, but Leslie Marie, do you want to weigh in on this before we come to that? I think, I think coming from being a direct service provider, like working in a community-based organization, um, I see how it becomes scary for folks in my position um, because you get used to a certain way of grant writing and things like this. And I think a lot of organizations allow the monies coming through to determine what they're going to do instead of visioning first and then finding ways to fund that vision. And so I think, you know, we've talked about prison system and police, but I think it's also talking about how nonprofits operate and this distinction between charity and mutual aid and this way of how can organizations that are already doing pretty good work, how can they vision themselves in a way to where they're doing great work and actually doing making the society that they want to see and not just falling back on certain dollars that are coming from the state. And I think that's one thing that I really struggle with, um, but I'm trying to learn. We're trying to learn as we go to, to build an organization that, or build a, a way of working with the community that is working with the community and not just relying on these funding streams um, just in terms of direct service. So yeah, any great models of that or any ways of moving forward um, would be deeply appreciative of learning how to do that and how to, to really vision and work towards that vision instead of us being told over and over again that we need to find ways to work with law enforcement. And I don't want to. Um, stop telling me to do that, you know? And so like, how, how do we find ways forward um, and also keeping us, us going and sustainable um, in, in terms, terms of service? I think it's a struggle. I think that's, I think the point around how philanthropy and, and money dictates work is so important. Um, Cause I also think that like, when we think about the ebbs and flows of movement building in Appalachia, so often it's been dictated by philanthropy and resources that were coming from the state. I think, I mean, it's just, you know, the war on poverty, right? The, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think that's a really important point. I want to name that because, I mean, I didn't know it until I was an executive director at Highlander that, you know, there, there is a, a small number, like probably the number of fingers on your hand or less of people that control the vast amounts of wealth in this, in this, in this world, right. Literally in the world. And they, they have conversations with each other about what the priorities are in terms of resources. Right. Um, it sounds like a conspiracy theory, but literally if you read the as grows the South report, uh, uh, you can see like the dollars and cents of this. Right. And they've decided that like 1% of their wealth should go to like charity, right? Like most of the rest of it goes to like space exploration or, whatever their pet projects are in, the, in any given moment, right? But 1% of that, of that wealth in the globe that they have goes to, to charity. Now, I want you to take that 1% um, and make that 
for like all the money that they're going to give to all the do-gooder stuff. Right. And I, and I use do-gooder really broadly. <laughs> right. Um, and only 4% of that comes to the South. Right. Only 4% of philanthropic dollars go to social justice oriented or like social good work um, in our region. Now, if, if only 4% of that, that little bitty slice goes to the South, you can imagine how much of that is going to direct services, especially direct services that are, are, are led and controlled and dictated by grassroots directly impacted communities, right? You can imagine how much of that comes to fighting social justice organizations that are actually pushing back against the state and dismembering and dismantling white supremacy and homophobia and transphobia and xenophobia, all of the, the systemic oppression that is harming our people, right? Most of this money's going to like Red Cross and, and United Way. And I'm not saying those people don't do some good things sometimes. But what I am saying is that it ain't the same kind of work that Leslie Marie and I are doing on the ground, right? So if that is the case, and then the folks that are, the way that they're funneling that money out is through foundations that are asking for deliverables that make no sense in a, in a, in a contemporary moment like this, um, then I think that there are some real conversations to be had um, because I, 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 just to be real, I think it's a priority at Highlander, right? We're, I think there's a difference between philanthropic organizing and fundraising, right? And I think that some people are spending a whole lot of time fundraising for dollars in this moment. Then they're saying, hey, philanthropy, we need you to do this and get out of the way, right? Cut the check and get out of the way. Well, we, and, and, and I think that for those of us that have that level of privilege and access to be able to talk to rich white people in particular and tell them like, this is the impact of what happens when you tell it, when you dictate to us what our work is, right? Um, some things that I've heard from grassroots organizers and folks uh, that I trust in philanthropy is like asking them the question of like, what grant report would you have required of Rosa Parks, right? What would you, what, what deliverables would you have encouraged Malcolm X to have so that you could talk to your board about his struggle for black liberation, right? Like if, if they can't see that that's what they're doing in a contemporary sense, make them make sense of what they would have done in a historic moment similar in the past, right? I think the second thing that I would say, and then I'll shut up, is that like, what I also know is that the majority of the resources that are sustaining these uprisings and are supporting grassroots organizations that are on the ground doing mutual aid and, and so many other things is being supported by regular people like you and me, right? Like the majority of the donations that we got after the Nazi attack um, and after, uh, you know, the, the, the uprising started um, and COVID-19 hit or from people giving like $15 here, $5 there, $10 over here. Right? Um, and so I feel curiosity around two things, because, I don't, again, I don't believe in this false dichotomy that it has to be an either or. Um, I believe what do we do to make sure that we're organizing philanthropy to the left um, and telling them like how to resource um, and not just telling them what not to do. I feel like we often told them like, don't give us like these one year grants, give us multi-year grants. And we told them, don't just give us project specific money, give us general operating funds. Right. But we haven't necessarily told them what to do. And I think in this moment, we have to tell them, don't just give us money to do rapid response. Also give us enough money to recover. We need to be having some serious conversations about reparations as well for past and ongoing harm, because they also didn't come by that money. Right. And then the second thing that I think we need to be doing, is also reminding working class people that like, we've always kept each other safe. That's the, the, the only place where I've ever felt safe was with other marginalized people, right? And that uh, that we don't have to be ashamed for sustaining our own stuff and caring for our own stuff. 
Um, and I'm excited to be in community with people, uh, particularly across this vast and, and growing mutual aid network uh, to make sure that our people have what they need. And, and if folks, you know, are looking for places to be having those conversations or want some wise counsel around it, Highlander is always available to you. Always, always, always available to you to talk about how to move this money. Right. Thinking of Highlander also reminds me of just one historical point on this, the Southeast Women's Employment Coalition, which arose in the 1980s, and there were a number of other um, very grassroots uh, women's organizations that were arising at that time, many of them led by women of color, particularly in the deeper South, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, South Carolina, I mean, North Carolina, too. Um, they, you know, they decided together, and this was, I think, one of the coalition's most important functions, that they were not going to be divided against one another through competition for funding. And so they went together um, to New York, which is where all the money comes from, right? Or so much of it that isn't, you know, just the people supporting the work. Um, and, uh, you know, went as a group. And they also, uh, and I think this is part of what you're talking about, Ash, but, you know, kind of took the reins to collectively start the conversation with funders about this is what we need. You know, if you really want to have an impact, this is what we need. So um, changing that power dynamic was really important, both among women and the folks who are funding the source. That's great. We go further together. And I think if we made, if we didn't fall fall to the, the easy trap of uh, getting into competition for the sake of philanthropy, I think we would win, right? And so I definitely love it when when movements, um, social movements and, and folks in organizations come together to make the demand. I also think we ask for far too little, um, quite frankly. I think it's like, you know, not egregious to believe that we can do more with more resources, right? It's like my comrades should not have to go fund me up to be able to get enough resources to feed homeless people, right? Unsheltered people. Um, they should have enough resources they could do that and make a living wage and have full healthcare benefits, right? And so, you know, my my two cents is that like we ask, we we have been conditioned, especially in conversations with institutional philanthropy and major donors, to not ask for what we need, right? To be the 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 humble Appalachian, like the you know the conservative hillbilly that uh, you know only asks for the bare minimum because we don't want to be too greedy, right? I feel like people talk about the ways that we compete against each other more than they talk about the ways that we try to make space for each other because we don't believe that there's enough for all of us to have exactly what we need, right? And so I, I feel excited about us actually having, real. I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier around vision. It's like, what, when do we stop shortchanging our own vision and ask for what we deserve, not just what we concede to, right? It's like, you know, I want Leslie Marie's work to have a $10 million budget, and I think that's too small, right? It's like, what if we were making a concrete ask based on a concrete assessment of concrete conditions? And if what we know is that the people that we work with are disproportionately impacted by ongoing and historic generational disinvestment, then why are we asking for pennies? You know, I'm not asking for, you know, philanthropy to only give, you know, a grassroots organization. Um, in one of our communities, like a thousand dollars, five thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars grants, and expect them to then organize the South, right? Like that's not fair. 
if we are the largest geographic region in the United States, and we are, if we are the place where the majority of Black people in this country live, and we are, then we should be getting resource like they want us to win. And if they're doing anything less than that, that is not the fault of like not having infrastructure. We've got infrastructure in the South to be able to hold these sorts of resources and disperse them across the region, right? There's incredible organizations like Grant Makers for Southern Progress and funders for LGBTQ issues and Solidaire and Research Generation and others who are incredibly committed to, to funding in the South, right? Um, and so it's not, it's not that we didn't do what we needed to do, right? I will never blame our people for, for the reasons that philanthropy is not resourcing as they should. But I would say that I think that we need to be bolder and bigger and badder in our demand that those are our resources anyway and give them back to us so that we can actually build the kind of world where we are not dependent on these resources in the first place. Yeah. Amen. Um, so we are just about out of time. Um, it's gone really quickly and been really rich. I just want to um, invite we, we actually have covered a number of the questions um, that came from the audience, at least partially, some about leadership, some about philanthropy. Um, there is one about the Democratic Party and how we deal with their partial and reformist approaches. Does anybody want to take that on before we sign off? Yeah. I'm on the policy table um, of the Movement for Black Lives. I'm on the leadership team, and I helped write the Vision for Black Lives policy platform. Um, and I say that not to like pat myself on the shoulder, but I say that to acknowledge that like Appalachians made some of that shit happen. <laughs> um, so when we talk about the movement for Black Lives, we're not talking about something that's happening outside of Appalachia. It's actually being led by people all across the South and, uh, and Appalachia as well. Um, and some awesome coastal elite homies that I love a lot. Um, but, you know, it's a Southern movement, too. Um and so I, I can, I can, I can, as Ashley, talk about it. What, one thing that I would say is I would caution us to think that the Democrats are the only people giving us piecemeal reform, right? We know that the uh, that the Republicans are also putting out their own bill, right, and that they're using a Black Republican to do it, and that, and and I mean, I'm sure people have seen Trump's executive order, which is a whole bunch of nothing on a piece of paper. Um, so, like, it's it's both parties, and and none of them have been as courageous as they need to be. Um, what I would say is like, I, you know, I've read the justice and policing bill and, and although I have, ex I have extreme criticism, it's not because there's not some good things in it. Right. Um, the, the demilitarization of the police and that sort of stuff is actually like stuff that people have been fighting for, for a really long time. I think the problem with, uh, Democrats that are that are pushing for this peaceful mill reform is that it doesn't go far enough. And I think it goes back to what Leslie Marie was saying earlier is like, you know, we did the ban of chokeholds and then Eric Garner still got killed. We did the no knock warrants bans and like Breonna Taylor is still dead. We did the body cams and the cops turned them off or they used them to surveil our communities and our movements. You know, we did the like warn that you're going to shoot before you like tell the people that you're going to shoot them before you shoot them. And guess what? They did. And then they shot them and they got away with it. Right. So like, again, it just it doesn't go far enough. And we so the, the way I think we deal with it is multifold. One, I think we write our own bills. Right. Like we should be social movements should be, actually not be conceding again. Back back to what me and Leslie Marie were saying earlier. We shouldn't be conceding the territory of policy. Right. We should use that as a tactical intervention. We should be introducing our own legislation. Um, and for those of us, like if you like me, we're like, man, I don't fool with that liberal shit. Like I'm, I don't do that policy stuff. That's cool. But like I remember 
a conversation with Larry Gibson, uh, the keeper of the mountains, who was not only one of my comrades, but one of my dearest friends. Um, and I remember he came up to me and he went bang. And I was like, whoa, dude, like, what are you doing? And he was like, I shot you. Are you dead? I was like, yeah. And he was like, okay, so I killed you. I was like, yeah, you killed me. And he was like, all right, cool. And then he like pretended like he was writing something. And he was like, this is a piece of policy. And I was like, okay, cool. And he was like, I passed it. And I was like, okay, cool. And he was like, but it's got some stuff in there that's going to kill you. I was like, what? He was like, yeah, man, like, you know, supporting mountaintop removal, for example. Um, And he was like, it's not going to kill you as quick as this gunshot. But, you know, that black lung surely will get you or, uh, you know, the the poison in the air and the water in your neighborhood is going to, you know, that that's coming down in your holler. It's going to make you sick and it's going to kill you slowly because you'll get cancer or some other thing. And, you know, that'll mess you up. So that even though I didn't put the gun to your head, I passed the policy. Did I still was I still involved in your death? And I'm like, yeah, man. He's like, well, then murder is murder is murder. Right. And so I think that we need to be real that like when we are in control of the policy that's being passed, then we are inevitably going to be impacted by the the failure of it. Right. We're going to be impacted by the failure of it. And so I think we have a responsibility to take some leadership in putting forward progressive policy. And if the Dems don't get on, then they don't get on. Right. But we actually need to be setting the, the, the tenor. And I feel like going back to what Barbara said earlier, it's why the demand around defund is so important. Right. And so we can say, like anything less than this is not what we are saying, right? If it puts one more penny into policing, then it is not what we want. And you cannot call that reform, right? Then for those of us that I think, you know, approach this work from a position of, uh, of faith, what I would also say is that there is nothing liberatory. There's nothing connected to liberation theology in regards to reform, right? Like that's, that's not how you get there. Reforming is not how you get there. And there's some things that you just can't reform. And I think that if we were actually thinking with our, you know, uh, our, our historic materialist uh, like lens on, what we would know is that there have been a, like the, the one institution in this country that has changed very, very, very little is policing, right? It started as folks with silver star badges, literally chasing after black people and dragging them back to plantations. And it's very, very, very similar today, right? And so if in literally hundreds of years worth of attempt at reform has failed, then the argument to defund actually doesn't become that radical, right? It becomes a very, very clearly articulated necessity. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think to the to the question of like, what do we do about piecemeal reform? I think we say that it doesn't go far enough. We call the legislators um, that wrote it. We call the legislators that are supporting it. Um, and we say it doesn't go far enough. We tell them what we actually want. And we demand that they incorporate it. We demand that they not give more money to police. We demand that they that they hold police accountable and states and municipal governments accountable to police misconduct. And I think we write our own bills. Again, we resist and we tear down and we do the political education work. We do all that. And we also build the alternative. So I'm excited about folks that are in conversations about putting forward bills that actually resonate with the vision for Black Lives, actually resonate uh, with the work that's been coming out of local communities. And I'm looking forward to being someone that lobbies on their behalf as an individually concerned citizen. Great. That's a wonderful way to close this out, I think. We're we're out of time. And um, so let me just remind people that if you're in a position to make a donation, no matter how small, it would be greatly appreciated. Um, there should be instructions somewhere on this. Uh, feed to um, 
to inform you about how to do that. You can give both the Haymarket books and also the Highlander uh, and to Black Home Material on Action in Knoxville. Um, thanks again to Haymarket books for sponsoring this. Um, thanks to you all who joined this call, and we hope to see you again on one of these live stream events. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.